I wanted to take a, talk about the takeaway from last week first. Um, one of the main things that you said, Stan, that I think is important for us to recap and start on is that we don't believe that God is saving us from the wrath of God, that God is not saving us then from eternal hell. And that is very important as we're talking about progressive Christianity of where we need to start today. We talked about sin last week and we're going to make our way into Jesus today. So sin, um, I realized, and I, I texted him last week, and I don't think I, we said this during the message, but I realized that in the six and a half years that I have been here, part of Grace Point, that we haven't preached specifically on sin at all. And I can see how that then could lead um, some of you to make the assumption then that within our theological framework that we don't believe in sin or that we don't care about sin. And yet... I've watched us, and I think this is the main point that I want to point out for us this morning. I've watched us over the past six and a half years pastor people and families through their sin. I've watched us try our hardest to respond then to them with love, to respond with grace and with mercy in the sense of kindness. Um, I've watched us then try to encourage then boundaries in people's lives um, to teach them to abstain from certain things then or to encourage them to push into other things. I've watched us um, to do those things, not as punishment for their failures, but as correctional practices then, um, to lead them and to expose those people to the better angels of their natures, which we talk about all the time, to remind them of who they are as the beloved of God, to remind them to see how that they have, yes, missed the mark, that they have sinned, but that then to do the work towards repentance, which is towards change, towards a return then to your belovedness, towards transformation. So when I watch how then we've pastored people through their sins, I think then it gives, um, it's our beliefs then put into practice. And it has to be then how then we believe God responds to us as individuals and as a group and as a community. And so there's this maturation process that we are all going through. This journey of our spirituality is a journey of growth. Um, it's growing into the image of God that we all have the capacity for. And so, yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we sin. Yes, we miss the mark. But those mistakes don't define us. And our sin is not our nature. Our nature is the very beloved of God, the very image of God inside of us. And so if we believe then that built into our very world, built into creation, is both the capacity to miss the mark, um, both culturally, um, as a culture we can miss the mark, and individually we can miss the mark. We can miss the mark intentionally and unintentionally. Um, that's built into our nature. That's built into our world. Also built in then is repercussions for that. Um, some of those repercussions are internal. That is guilt. And I want to remind us this morning that guilt is the feeling. Um, it's feeling badly about something that we've done, but shame is feeling badly about who we are. Okay, so guilt is feeling badly about something we've done, but shame is feeling badly about who we are. So built into this world and in this process is the capacity for guilt internally. And then externally, there are built-in consequences um, to our mistakes and to our actions. But then also built into our world is this beauty of redemption and healing, this returning to the ideal and then this growth um, it's a built-in metaphorical cycle that sometimes is known as the Paschal Cycle. Um, it's this idea of life and then death and burial and resurrection. Life then represents the seasons that we go through, our ups and our downs, um, when we are growing towards the image of God that is in us and when we are thus missing the mark and stepping back. And then because of that, then death is built in 
or the consequences or the repercussions, but after that is always life again. After that is always resurrection or transformation. And so then that brings us, for me then, it brings us then to who is Jesus and what is Jesus' relationship then to humanity. Because for so many of us, again, I want to state what we grew up with and what is really the most popular Christian belief um, at the, the time is this notion that God then must be separate from us from our sin, that God then thus demands punishment in order for forgiveness to be possible. That's what most of us grew up with. That's traditional or the most popular Christianity and the most popular Christian message. Then in understanding that Jesus and the cross then, you quickly have to affirm the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. That someone has to be punished in order to pay that penalty for all sin, in order to satisfy then the requirements that we believe God needs. Only then can God forgive us of our sins and only then can God open up the perfect realm of heaven. So if the diagnosis is sin that causes separation, then the treatment then seemingly is penal substitutionary atonement. That's what Jesus came for. But if we and others believe, and I think it's important, maybe we haven't pointed it out enough, that this isn't just us saying this. This isn't just something Brian McLaren came up with um, a couple of years ago. People have been having these notions from the very beginning of the church. Um, and so if, if many of us then are thinking that the initial diagnosis of sin and separation is wrong, then we have to then think about and understand a new treatment plan for this world, a new treatment plan for the journey that we're on. And so within the Judeo-Christian Christian text in the Bible and within our uh, tradition, we are dealing then with both the misdiagnosis and then a new diagnosis. We're trying to fix and to heal and to grow. It's this two steps forward and three steps back that we always talk about. And so I want to point out then when Augustine, this man in the fourth century, he's wrestling with all this information and with all these ideas. And so he's the one that um, is known to have come up with this doctrine of original sin. That's in the fourth century. And then in response to that, most scholars agree that another man, St. Anselm, came up with the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement in response to Augustine then. And so the key point here is that these doctrines are human explanations. They are humans trying to figure out objective truth. They are potential ways of understanding the biblical message put, put together by humans. So these are faithful people I want to point out. These were faithful people doing their job, doing their very best with the information that they had, with their insight, and within their context. But the doctrines have evolved. They can be changed, they can be corrected, or sometimes they can seem heretical. But we have that very same call. We have that very same responsibility to take tradition and look at creation and culture and our context and community and scripture and then use our intuition and then decide then what does all of this mean for us and for our world. And so I think that brings us to Jesus. It does. And Matthew 121, I mean, the very nature of Jesus' name, the angel said, call him Jesus for he will what? Save him. Save his people from what? sins. Not he will save his people from the wrath of God, save his people from the justice of God. He will save his people from their sins. When Melissa was saying, do we believe in sin? I thought, boy, I sure do. I, I do it sometime. Don't y'all? <laughs> um, does anybody here believe in sin? Mm -hmm. You believe in sin and you see it in other people's lives all the time, don't you? <laughs> right? um, so again, of course, even Jesus' name, Yeshua, Joshua, the Hebrew, 
uh, Yahweh has become salvation. I mean, inherent in the Judeo-Christian way of thinking is this idea of God intervening and saving. All the way back to our original narrative, almost every major linchpin story from Adam to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, period of the judges, into the prophetic time, all the way through our story, there is this idea of God saving us. But the question uh, Pastor Melissa begged is, what is God saving us from? Well, that's rooted in something that far predates Judeo-Christian, uh, uh, the Judeo-Christian religion. We know that the Judeo-Christian religion began developing uh, somewhere in the mid to late second millennia B.C. We also know just anthropologically that in the third millennia B.C., as human beings begin to develop more fully their idea of God. You see, we weren't the first one talking about God, but around this world, groups of people who were not cross-pollinating in the third millennia B.C. began to develop this idea that the spirits of our ancestors, the invisible world, somehow that domain was inhabited by superior beings that ultimately developed into the idea of creator gods. Almost immediately, we were suspicious of these others on the other side of the veil. Not almost immediately. Immediately, we were suspicious. We believed that anything that happened that was not fortuitous, anything that happened that was bad, was somehow the handiwork of these players on the other side of the veil. And so, automatically, our suspicion was that the gods were angry. Life seemed to indicate that the gods were angry. One of the most primal, original dispositions of humanity toward the gods is that the gods are angry. The Judeo-Christian movement came along. The Abrahamic movement came along, and its chief innovation, listen, its chief innovation was not monotheism. Its chief innovation was the morality of God. We were the first group of people that began to say, it's not a soap opera on the other side of the clouds. The gods aren't capricious. They're not whimsical. They're not up there living like bad humans, but there's actually benevolence, altruism, love in the heart of God, and there's consistency. So the Judeo-Christian people began to develop this idea that God was good. Well, before we came along and really began saying those kinds of things, if the gods were angry and bad things were happening to us because the gods were angry, what becomes the chief religious disposition of humans? If the gods are angry, bad things are happening to us, what do we have to do? We have to make the gods happy, don't we? Or at least not quite as angry. Every major religious system that has ever developed this, in this world, and that might be a stretch, but the major, vast majority of religious systems, especially the early ones, there were three primary mechanisms we've talked about. Priests, sometimes sincere people who came along and said, we are experts and can help you with those scary gods. You see how that might set up for a charlatan to come along and say, playing upon the fear of the person, for a small phenomenal fee, I'll take care of your case with the big scary thing in the sky, right? And so the priesthood developed. The priest said that we can actually meet God for you and take care of your business with God. We can broker a deal between you and God. And generally, those meetings happen between the expert and God on your behalf. The meetings happened at places called altars. 
You know why there were altars? They were demilitarized zones. They were zones where supposedly the gods would set down their guns and with certain criteria met, the gods would come to that particular river, that particular butte of the mountain, that particular outcropping, and the god would stand on one side, the humans on the other, and at the altar we would interact with the god or the priest would interact. And then you remember what the priest did at the altar or at the temple? The priest would make what? Sacrifice. Think about the inherent idea of sacrifice. I'm sacrificing. What's that mean? I am self-punishing. I'm punishing myself so as to aver God's punishment. And if I sanction myself enough and if I cost myself enough, maybe God will not enact God's wrath upon me. And so priests and altars and sacrifices, all of that is spiritual medicine. All of that is a treatment plan, but it's a treatment plan built on the foundation of a diagnosis, right? And the diagnosis is that the gods are angry and the gods need appeased. What if the diagnosis is wrong? What if the gods aren't angry? What if God doesn't need appeased? And thus began the Judeo-Christian trek into that very question. And it was a slow trek, three steps forward, two steps backward, a slow grinding trek. 800 years into the sacrifices of Abraham, 400 years into the Levitical system, David, a sinner who's murdered, committed adultery, and his family's a wreck, he crawls into the cave at Machpelah where Sarah and Abraham are buried, Isaac and Rebekah, and he takes off his crown and he comes off the throne and takes off his purple robe and he crawls amongst the bat dung and he cries, cast me not away from your presence. Remove not your Holy Spirit from me because that's the idea. The gods are angry with what we've done. They're offended and they're going to get us. But as David continued to press into that prayer, reason for him later being called a man after God's own heart came to the surface because that precocious yet sinful soul finally pressed his way through to this. He said, it is not the blood of bulls and goats you want. I can't tell you how heretical a statement that is. At 1,000 B.C., in the middle of a sacrificial system where their entire religion is based upon getting the proper animal before God sacrificed, the best of your animals sacrificed. And David, broken in sin, says, it's not the blood of bulls and goats you want. And as the heresy alarms went off, David said, it's a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Oh, my God, all you ever wanted was my heart. That's a thousand years before Jesus. The question then begs, did God tell Abraham to kill his son? Yes. Second question, did God need Abraham to kill his son? Third question, did God want Abraham to kill his son? Did God tell Abraham to kill his son? Did the Mosaic system set up animal sacrifice as a way to appease God? Ask David, did God need animal sacrifice? But those structures 
are the goodness of God graciously pacing itself with human development. And that's good parenting on any level. But back again we come to the question, finally Jesus comes. People say, well, he was called the Lamb of God. He was sacrificed on Good Friday. The Paschal cycle relates back to the Paschal sacrifice of the animals in the Mosaic system. Absolutely. In the first century world where sacrifice pervaded everything and the idea of the gods was still that the gods were angry. What did Jesus go about saying all the time? I love you, I love you, I love you. No, he never said I love you. What did he say everywhere he went? Don't be afraid. Look at it. Number one thing Jesus ever said again and again. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Don't be afraid. When he came as a baby, the angel was saying, don't be afraid. When he stood with his voice booming and his pap skirt about with white and his feet like brass and his eyes like fire, and even one named John who was his beloved and walked with him, fell at his feet, and John said, it slew me. I was dead, and he walked over to me in the scariest book in the Bible, and he laid his hand on me and said, don't be afraid. For love, when it matures, cast out all fear. Human capacity is growing. And so the question that has been, been, has been being begged for the last several hundred years within the Christian church, and Anselm was asking it, and Augustine were asking it, was why did Jesus die, and in what way is Jesus our Savior? And, and, and to be as plain as I can possibly be, and I'll throw this back to Mel, the question is, did Jesus come as a sacrifice to give the Father capacity in His holiness to be with us? Or did Jesus come in His sacrifice, greater love hath no man than this, than He lay down His life for His friend, to draw us into the awareness of God's presence in our life? Was the sacrifice of Jesus assuaging the wrath of God or was the sacrifice of Jesus ministering to the shame of humans? Was the sacrifice of Jesus saying, can you forgive them now? Or was the sacrifice of Jesus saying, can you believe you're forgiven now? Will you love them now or will you be loved now? Was it blood spilt on the altar of a God whose economy needed death in order to give life? Was it, was it God's heart that needed the little lamb slaughtered? Was it, God, was it God's heart that needed the son slaughtered? Or was it the broken human heart? That is the central question pressing Christianity today. And conservative Christianity explicitly states the diagnosis as sin, even one. We heard it all of our life. It doesn't, mean whether you're, it doesn't matter if you're a mass pedophile or if you simply told a white lie as a child. The white lie, remember that? Remember that? The white lie as a child is, has the equivalent effect of mass pedophilia. It separates from God. Did anybody ever stick on that just a little bit? As you thought about cruel and unusual punishment, as you thought about misdemeanors and felonies, but the reality is the diagnosis was that as soon as there's sin, any sin, it separates you from God, the holiness of God is offended, the wrath of God is incurred, and somehow there has to be an intervening work to satisfy the wrath of God. 
So you have a good cop, bad cop relationship in the Trinity where the Son of God, the second person, is talking the first person, the Trinity, into a capacity to be with us. Diagnosis is sin separates from God. Severe treatment plan. A more moderate Christianity that and is wait, developed. Before you move on. Okay. And in that treatment plan, it, the afterlife is very much a focus. It's very much a focus. And, and while you talked about eternal hell, the, the reality is this separation means that you will, et- the diagnosis is you will be eternally consciously tormented forever unless there is an intervening act on your behalf. A more moderate Christianity began to develop several hundred years ago, and it's always pervaded the church. I think Paul was actually this. But people like C.S. Lewis, Philip Yancey, others popularized it in N.T. Wright, evangelical circles. And that is, the diagnosis is still sin and separation, but you will notice many of us begin to move off such a severe treatment plan and such a severe prognosis. Mm -hmm. The diagnosis was still the same. Sin separates... But in the most conservative fundamentalist realms, the prognosis was horrible and the treatment plan was caustic. In more moderate realms of Christianity, which are very pervasive now, the diagnosis was still the same, but the prognosis was much better and the treatment plan was less caustic. But I would be remiss not to say that I think what's developing now and certainly what I espouse personally and has been developing in my heart and, and many others is not only a question of prognosis and treatment plan, but diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And once the diagnosis is different, I mean, if you misdiagnose someone as a a doctor, you may have the perfect regimen and treatment plan, but if it's for the wrong illness, you're not helping that person. And, you know, I, I walked around with an evangelical group not long ago in a looking at their children's ministry. It was a couple of years ago. And it was a beautiful children's ministry, but they spent 45 minutes of the first hour and 15 minutes we were together explaining how their chief duty is to help their children before third grade know that they're lost and going to hell to burn forever. And something inside of me says, that doesn't feel like the gospel. Trying to convince six and seven and eight-year-old children that they are eternally separated from God. Something about that is counterintuitive. And I think that same trajectory that was bubbling up from Abraham through Moses to David to Jesus, Jesus did not bring us to a fixed point at the end of the first century. Else Augustine wouldn't have been coming up with original sin and Anselm wouldn't have been wrestling with substitutionary penal atonement in the, ninth, in the 10th century, rather. Jesus and I, I quote this often, but Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion looked at his disciples and he said, I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will lead and guide you into all truth. There's a part of that that I often leave out that I don't need to leave out. Jesus said, I've taught you everything you can handle now, but when the Holy Spirit comes, not only did he say he will teach you and lead you into all truth, Jesus said he will teach you all things about me. The continuing work of the Holy Spirit is a continual unfolding of the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ. And I personally, as a progressive, do not think the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ unfolded completely by the end of the first century. But it has been the duty 
and the gift of the church to continue that process of learning, the Holy Spirit taking us back and learning about Jesus more and more as time unfolds. So for us, Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is, um, he, I think we've said it before, he's the advantage for us to see who God is. The best example that we have, it's the idea of the exemplary model. So the best example that we have of God and thus how we're called to live as well. Yeah, Jesus, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus didn't say, oh man, you don't want to know the Father. He's the guy that's tough on sin, but I take care of sinners pretty well. You know, somehow Jesus is supposed to be same substance, you know, same essence. He is the second person in the Trinity, and yet we describe God as having an incapacity to be with human sin. But the second person in the Trinity does not have an incapacity to be with sin, and somehow his capacity to be with sin sacrificially secures the first person in the Trinity's ability to be with us. And all of that gets so complex. The, the mental gymnastics that that requires make complete sense if you live in a sacrificial world. But 2,000 years later, we don't live in a sacrificial world, at least to that degree. And, and so what you have in Jesus is not a revelation of the second person of the Trinity necessarily. Jesus was asked by Philip, he said, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says, oh, man, you don't want to know him. You know me. I'll take care... I'll take care of the business with the Father. I will go in. Tie a rope around my ankle. I'll go into the holy place, take care of the tough guy. No, Jesus looked at Philip and said, have I been so long time with you and you haven't known me? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. So when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus' disposition towards sin is the Father's disposition towards sin. And that was to come into community closely with those who are broken and those who are hurting. So, yes, Jesus is Savior in the most beautiful of forms, but how is that salvation being exacted? How is that salvation being achieved? What is that salvation from and for is the question. And maybe if, if I could put you on the spot a little. if You haven't already? <laughs> If, um, so, so many of us, we've all grown up with these ideas and so many of us are deconstructing them and trying to put them back together and, and trying to hang on to words or ideas or reformulate them. What would you say to someone, pretend this person exists that grew up, did not grow up in church, has no idea of Jesus and God and you are trying to tell them this story for the first time and you don't have to deconstruct anything in their mind. You're just building and exposing them to this beautiful picture. Would you use the same words? Would you explain it in the same way? Like how, because I think if we can give that introductory paragraph, I mean, that's at the heart of what we're then saying within progressive Christianity. Because if you shake off the dust of the deconstruction, what are we trying to build? What are we trying to say? So the question is, and this will segue into next week, who is Jesus? Mm -hmm. Who was Jesus? Who is Jesus? Um, or maybe it's who is God, and how does Jesus fit into that? Well, in my final 90 seconds, let me tidy that up for you. Oh, we have two minutes. Okay, sorry. Uh, it's good. For me, here's the good news. Here's the good news. Life is more than organic. Life is spiritual. Life is a gift, and that gift was given by a creator. I believe in a creator, a, a primal source. I believe that life is an indication that that giver 
is good and that life is to be received as good. And I believe when a human being comes into a mutual friendship with that creator, one that was described in Abraham's life as a friend of God, our story from the beginning was that God simply wanted to be trusted. He wanted Adam and Eve to trust, Noah to trust, Abraham to trust. And I think the story of the Judeo-Christian text is that we have always had a hard time trusting that God is lover and we are beloved. I think every person in this room has a predisposition to struggle with your belovedness. And I believe that God did come specially in the person of Jesus Christ. And I believe that God came not to reveal a new disposition toward humans, but to reveal what had always been God's disposition toward humans, and that is one of complete openness and love. I don't believe that God came in Jesus to fix us completely on Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus was always deflecting. He was always saying things like, my father is greater than I, Paul said to it, God was in Jesus to reconcile the world to God's self. It seems that we have spent more time venerating Jesus than we have following what Jesus actually tried to lead us to do, and that is to come into union with God. And uh, even Mary was so Christian in her form that when Jesus got up out of the grave, she immediately sunk her fingers into him, and Jesus didn't say, oh, that, that worship feels good. Write some songs about that and do that for eternity. No. <laughs> he pulled her fingers away and said, let me go. The greatness of Jesus was his appeal that we should let him go because Jesus was never intending to be the end. Jesus was intending to be the bridge, not to a new thing, but back to an old thing. That's why Jesus called himself a son of Abraham and Paul called him the second Adam, because we are ever trying to find that memory that brings us back to Eden where we have mutually trusting relationship with God. And that's the story of Jesus. Jesus should be an advantage to us to bring us into union with the invisible God. If Jesus gets in the way of that, it is not Jesus. It is a poor facsimile of a religion representing Jesus that I think really missed the point of what Jesus was all about. That's good. That's good. But any prolific human leader that makes a dent often gets more of a market share than either they deserve or they want. Mm. And we focus more on the human than we do on the mission. And um, I believe the mission is to restore a mutually trusting relationship with God. I don't think the message that restores a mutually trusting relationship with God is that somebody did something 6,000 years before you were born and from birth on you deserve to be tortured forever. And the good news is if you were born in the right part of the world, you might have an opportunity to escape eternal conscious torment. I understand where that came from, but I believe the Judeo-Christian uh, religion is ministering little by little away of that until finally John's words will come true. Love, when it is fully matured, cast out. How much fear? That includes the fear of God. The fear of God is being rectified by the ministry of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in us today. Yes. So.
So I'm, I'm sure this encourages a lot of questions in your mind. Maybe. Oh, boy. <laughs> so if you have them, we want you to email us this week. So many of you are talking back to us and emailing us. I'm even willing through this series for us to look toward a Sunday night yes. and say, let's take a Sunday night. I'll be quiet and, and let's feel the questions that come from we'll I won't be completely quiet, too. <laughs> but we'll feel the questions. And that, we can that build that into this. Sunday yeah. morning as well a little bit, maybe on some of these weeks. Okay. You but, got something you want to read? No, I do want to read this, but I also want to tell you, we're, he's read tons of books in, over the span of his life. I'm reading lots of books. If you want to know some authors, if you enjoy reading as well, I mean, we can give you book lists after book list about all of these topics as well, because there's a lot of wonderful things out there that challenge you and provoke all of this. Um, as we, we're going to move into a time of communion, so I'm going to ask our communion servers to come, and I want to read this over us um, as they are starting to prepare. T.S. Eliot wrote this beautiful um, poem, Journey of the Magi, and in it he says, were we led all this way for birth or death? This was a birth certainly. We have evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death but I had thought they were different. I should be glad of another death. He goes on later to say, we return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in this old dispensation. We're with an alien people clutching their gods. And then Richard Rohr goes on to say, we keep returning to our longtime practice of fear and appeasement, but somehow it does not really work anymore. History has been askew ever since Jesus. We are all on a tilt since history heard about the incarnation, and we can easily find our new balance. We cannot easily find our new balance. And I think that the gospel leaves us deliberately off balance. So we have to stay on that same astrologer's journey, seeking a star outside of our own little kingdoms. Be careful not to rebalance yourself too quickly, or you will probably miss the transformative power of the good news. The precise nature of that tilt, that skewed sense of what is up and what is down, what is success and what is failure, it's called the Paschal Mystery. As we Catholics say at the heart of the Eucharistic prayer, it is the mystery of faith. See, life and death are two sides of the same reality, and they cannot be separated. You cannot have one without the other. God is in both places at the same time. Probably that is why the Paschal Mystery is the real theme of every single communion. We would not get it or believe it any other way. So T.S. Eliot says it so well in his poem, I had seen birth and death, but I had thought they were different. See, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. This says truthfully that the only reality available to us is inherently glorious and inherently tragic. To trust and live that reality, to find God in both sides of everything, is to live the agony and the ecstasy of God. Reality itself converts us. Or as my friend Paula Darcy puts it, God comes to you disguised as your life. You cannot imagine a more universal, a more available, and non-elitist spirituality. No wonder Jesus rightly and proudly told us to preach this gospel to all the nations. It is by its nature non-exclusionary and creative of community. It is indeed very good news. It does not create group superiority or scapegoating. It only transforms and it enlightens. It invites everybody to transformation and also challenges every attempt to put us back in charge. Our word for this is, of course, incarnation. If you get incarnation right, passion, death, 
and resurrection all follow in predictable sequence. If God can be manifest in a baby in a poor stable for the unwanted, then we better be ready for God just about anywhere and in anybody. The letting go of any attempt to compartmentalize God will always feel dangerous and maybe even like dying. And as T.S. Eliot said, I should be glad of another death. What looks like birth is also and always death in this mystery of faith. And what looks like death, thanks be to God, is promised as birth. That explains the foundational optimism of authentic Christianity and the deep joy of authentic Christians. They are indestructible people. The world itself is the hiding place and the revelation place of God. The actual is what leads us to God. We now have the ability to find God in all things, even the sinful, the broken, the painful, and the tragic. It creates a very restful and peaceful and joy-filled religion where the primary attitudes are confidence and gratitude, but not without suffering. This is good news. This is the true epiphany, the great surprise of God. And ironically, it differs from the traditional worldview only insofar as now there is no need for fear or technique. It is based in joy and in the primal goodness of Genesis while being totally honest about also its necessary tragic side. But the great difference is that God uses everything to get at us, even our mistakes. It is good news for anybody, transformation for everybody, and bad news for nobody except for those who want to divide and conquer. Now, God is in all things. We can no longer separate, exclude, or avoid anybody or anything under the guise of religion. The incarnation of God in Christ allows us to see God's image and incarnation everywhere else, too. Our Christ is the magnificent showing forth of what has always been happening by what we were afraid and unable to see. John Duns Scotus called this doctrine the primacy of Christ. The mind of God first created a prototype, Jesus, and what God did there perfectly, he used as a model for the rest of creation. If we get Jesus right, then all the rest makes sense, even if it is often still painful. Such a colossal Christ is indeed the savior of the world. Can you say amen?